Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Organized to foster connections between the exhibition Heaven and Earth, Art of Byzantium from Greek Collections at the National Gallery of Art, and the research interests and collections of Dumbarton Oaks Research Library and Collection, this colloquium echoes the companion volume to the exhibition catalog, Cities and Countryside in Byzantine Greece. In the colloquium, held on November 15, 2013 at the gallery, American and Greek Byzantinists addressed the many ways community was visualized in the arts, including mosaics, frescoes, icons, and everyday objects, in architectural construction, and in settings for the ceremonies of daily life and death. Heaven and Earth, Art of Byzantium from Greek Collections, is on view through March 2, 2014. This program is coordinated with and supported by Dumbarton Oaks Research Library and Collection. The first lecture was presented by Robert Austerhout, Professor of Art History and Director of the Center for Ancient Studies, University of Pennsylvania. I'm going to tell you a great tale, and if you listen to me, I hope it will please you. That's how the Chronicle of Morea begins, as it recounts the history of the Peloponnese in the 13th century. And that's what the exhibit next door does, and that's what our colloquium hopes to do as well, to tell you a great tale. Traditionally, American museums like the National Gallery of Art or the Smithsonian sought to do just that with the objects in their collections. Founded following the concept of an object-based epistemology, it was argued that one could learn the history of an entire civilization from the close analysis of a single artifact. For example, in 1894, Edward Everett Eyer of the Field Museum insisted all museum material should speak for itself upon sight. It should be an open book which tells a better story than any description will do. I'm sure our valiant curatorial colleagues from Greece and the National Gallery will be happy to learn that their months of hard work preparing labels, wall texts, and catalogs was entirely unnecessary. <laughs> or was it? Reviewers have found the exhibit to be ambushingly resplendent, whatever that means. They came away dazzled by that heady mixture of spirituality and glitz, happily reducing a complex, millennium-long civilization to numinous bling, despite all wall text to the contrary. One reviewer who dismissed Dumbarton Oaks' Byzantine collection as small and snobby um, seemed ready to convert at the National Gallery when confronted with the icon of a ruddy-cheeked St. Michael. Byzantium, it would seem, from their brief forays into object-based epistemology, was all about religion. The Byzantines went to church, prayed, venerated icons, collected relics, retired to monasteries, debated arcane theological issues, and did very little else. Now, to be fair to the reviewers, this misperception has co colored the image of Byzantium almost since the beginning. Thus, a luxurious incense burner looted from Constantinople in 1204 could be transformed into a reliquary in its new Venetian context simply because it came with that Constantinopolitan cachet of sanctity. Uh, 
Note that its decoration is not at all religious and sometimes downright silly. I am particularly fond of the puto with his head stuck in a basket. The same detail appears in the famed Veroli casket, an elegantly carved ivory jewel box decorated with overtly classical and occasionally obscene imagery. Without belaboring the point, it might be a great revelation to our reviewers to realize the Byzantines could be irreverent and actually had a sense of humor. Or maybe the reviewers just have their heads stuck in baskets. So maybe some background is necessary if we are to understand the rich and varied collection of artifacts within the uh, society of, uh, that produced them. And this is the purpose of today's colloquium, to begin to visualize the communities represented by the artifacts. It's a real challenge, um, a real challenge to our imagination, even when the vestiges of Byzantine cities and villages are examined in situ. As Alexander Van Millingen warned in 1912 to those coming to Constantinople, the visitor must be prepared for disappointment. So let's begin there. Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, is its best-known city. And for a 6th-century flaneur, a stroll down the Meze, the main street of the city, would have been filled with visual splendors, evidence of the pleasures of life in a prosperous em uh, empire. Lined with colonnades and shops, the streets uh, led past the ostentatious mansions of the wealthy, the Hippodrome with its chariot races and entertainments, the Baths of Zeuxippus, its marble statues portraying the legendary history of the city going back to the Trojan War. At the millennium, the mile marker from which all distances were measured, the Meze opened into the Augustaean Square. The very heart of the empire, the panorama encompassed the law courts at the Basilica, the equestrian statue of Justinian, his great church of Hagia Sophia, and the monumental entrance to the palace of the Byzantine emperors. It's almost impossible to imagine today. While Hagia Sophia still stands, the rest exists only in evocative texts and crumbling archaeological remains. But Constantinople, at its height, must have been similarly difficult for most Byzantines to imagine, particularly those of later centuries. Until the 7th century, Byzantium was an urban empire following its Roman predecessor, characterized by a vibrant public life in its civic spaces. After a difficult period of transition by the late 9th century, most cities were reduced to towns or villages. Life became more private, with the home as the dominant focus. Even in the capital, the grand public spaces were abandoned, and the well-built monuments of the later centuries are limited to churches and fortifications. Houses were usually poorly built and known only from archaeology. That is, in a world filled with the artifices of eternity, that is, the churches, the settings of daily life were ephemeral. Now, other Byzantine cities had similar monuments and histories. Late antique Corinth, 
Thessaloniki or Athens, for example, must have resembled Constantinople on a reduced scale, with colonnaded streets, palaces, grand public spaces in the early centuries, followed by a reduction in scale, but the setting of daily life remains elusive. Um, The excavation of Byzantine neighborhoods in Corinth seen here, or in Athens, may be revelatory for the specialist, but are essentially impenetrable for the non-specialist. And the historical texts that describe urban life rarely find a direct connection to archaeological remains. For example, the life of uh, St. Nikon provides many details of urban life in 10th century Sparta, including the fact that Nikon's monastery lay next to a sporting ground so that the rowdy footballers and polo players disturbed the contemplations of the monks. Although much of Byzantine Sparta has been excavated, it's still unclear where exactly all this was. Similarly, in Thessaloniki, Um, The story of Tamarion, probably composed in the 12th century, provides vivid details of the Dimitria, the annual fair honoring Thessaloniki's patron saint, Demetrius. Uh, Tamarion tells of rows of market stalls selling exotic wares from many lands to throngs of pilgrim shoppers. But he doesn't tell us where the fair was held. Was it inside the city or outside its walls? So it's, perhaps it's better to follow the artifacts rather than the texts to lead us into the Byzantine world. Even some of the most unprepossessing of objects, like this tiny coin on the screen, in actuality less than an inch in diameter, can tell a great tale. Although poorly minted and badly worn, the image on the coin is of the Mother of God with her arms raised in prayer. It's a common image we know from icons and wall paintings, but here she is surrounded by the walls of Constantinople, something like Ataiki, the tutelary deity who ensured the prosperity of an ancient town. Here she's the protector of the Byzantine capital, the one who guarantees its security. For uh, For as the walls provided physical security, the presence of the Mother of God in icons and in relics guaranteed its spiritual security. Indeed, when the city was under siege, the relics and icons of the Virgin were paraded along the walls and were credited with repulsing both the Avar and the Russian armies. This modest coin, then, speaks eloquently of the history and meaning of Constantinople. This glazed ceramic plate from Corinth can lead us into the Byzantine house. It's a good example of elegant tableware of the 12th or 13th century. Although excavated in the city dump, it must have come from one of the better homes of Corinth. It depicts an amorous couple uh, with a man seated on a stool holding the woman on his lap, often said to be uh, an illustration uh, to the epic romance Digenes Acrites. It may indicate the literary pretensions of the owner. In fact, the plate can lead us in several directions, to the book and the tale of the hero's seduction, to the production site where the pottery was produced in quantity for the markets of the city, or to the table where similarly colorful plates and bowls have insistently secular decoration with dancers, animals, and decorative flourishes.
Also from the Byzantine table is the fork, with many examples in the exhibit. The 10th century Byzantine princess Theophano, who married the Holy Roman Emperor Otto II, is credited with introducing the fork into Europe. Here's Theophano. Um, She's alleged to have astonished the Germans when she used a golden double prong to bring food to her mouth instead of using her hands, as was the custom. From Byzantium then come table manners. Note that even Christ in the Last Supper uses a fork in Byzantine wall paintings. While the objects in the exhibit can tell us much about Byzantine life, they can also tell us about death. Um, as in this icon that depicts the Dormeshen of St. Ephraim the Syrian with an assortment of monastic hermits gathering at his funeral. An icon of the Mother of God presides, and Ephraim clutches another personal icon to his chest. Now, many objects in the uh, exhibit come from excavated burials, such as the blue, blue glass aspergill shown here. Now, an aspergill is technically a liturgical implement used for sprinkling holy water during the liturgy, so perhaps it's better uh, to simply call this a perfume bottle. Um, although found on roads in a village church, the flask is most likely manufactured in Syria with its distinctive shape designed for sprinkling aromatic water. It thus reflects trade networks and perhaps shared practices with the Islamic communities during the last centuries of Byzantium. Similar examples have been found in Thessaloniki and the Thimotikon, most with known provenance coming from tombs. We can imagine that sprinkling holy water or perfume as part of the Byzantine burial ceremony. I'm particularly fond, by the way, of the example on the right since I excavated it myself many years ago. Uh, we found it lying on the torso of an aristocratic woman, probably someone related to the imperial family, who was buried wearing a silk robe and jewelry. From the objects, then, we can begin to get a glimpse of the people behind them, although sometimes only faintly with half-told tales. The 14th century gold signet ring on the screen features a rampant lion surrounded by the title of its owner, Sevastos Vestiario, a high imperial official. Sevastos was an honorary title, meaning venerable, often given to administrative officials. The Vestiario was a special official who followed the emperor on naval campaigns on the ship that carried the public treasury and armory. Both title and image are in reverse, um, as this was his personal seal, and when stamped, the images would appear frontwards. And both title and image speak of the owner's social status, although his name is not given. The image of the rampant lion was probably borrowed from Western European heraldry. It's indicative of the broad cultural connections of the later Byzantine centuries. The same image, the rampant lion, appears in the devices of Richard the Lionheart and uh, the Lusignans of Cyprus. And we see it here in the sculptural decorations of the Perivleptos Monastery from Mistra, um, whose construction is attributed to the despot Manuel Cantacuzinos and his wife, Isabella de Lusignan. Of course, Mistra, the capital of the Morea, had strong connections with the West. 
The rampant lion also appears on a shield in this wall painting of the Virgin and Child from mid-15th century Athens, seen in the exhibit, uh, where it represents Francesco Acciaioli, the Genoese Duke of Athens in the late Middle Ages. But on the ring, the image is used without having personal or familial specificity, simply to indicate uh, his social status, as was common in Byzantium. And we may suspect that the nameless Sevastos Vestiario was a high-ranking official of the despotate of Morea. The catalog notes simply and poignantly that the ring was found in the sea off Monemvasia. How did it get there? Did his ship go down in a storm? Was he accompanying the imperial flotilla at the time? Where was he going, and what became of him? Alas, we may never know. But as, of, as with so much of Byzantium, there's a story there somewhere, a really great story. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.